When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Times Opinion Podcast. I'm Philip Webster. I'm editor of the Red Box Daily News Bulletin. This morning, my guests are David Aronovich, columnist for the Times, Phil Collins, columnist for the Times, and Lucy Fisher, senior political correspondent of the Times. The first voice you'll hear is David Aronovich. Oh, what a great brouhaha that Syria vote was. Momentous, said the BBC. A fabulous debate, everyone agreed, with MPs congratulated on either side for weighing the issues and their consciences with an almost exquisite aesthetic precision. Well, balls, frankly. The decision was the minimum possible response a country like ours could have made. Anything else would have been an admission that short of responding to being invaded, Britain had put its military out to grass. The anonymous man who said to the attacker at Leytonstone Tube Station, you ain't no Muslim, bruv, has been hailed as speaking for moderate people of all faiths and none. Quite right, too. Yet the statement is, alas, not quite true. We cannot attribute murder to faith, but we cannot pretend faith is entirely irrelevant either. It's received wisdom that Jeremy Corbyn is unelectable and Labour will tank at the 2020 polls if he is still at the helm. But outside Westminster and Fleet Street, could he galvanise the population with anti-austerity left-wing policies? If the economy falters again, Tory welfare cuts are causing pain, wages are stagnant, no one under, say, 40 can afford to buy a home, and inequality is perceived to have risen, then Mr Corbyn and his cohort may look an attractive prospect in five years' time. It's been a bad year for political pundits and pollsters. From the general election in May to Oldham by-election last week, we've called it wrong. So it's worth challenging the orthodoxy and countenancing the possibility. Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn. Right. Off we go then. David Aronovich, what's the point of having armed forces if you don't use them? Not only what's the point of having armed forces if you don't use them, but we've gradually got ourselves into a situation whereby we are so antsy about almost any kind of use of military force, actually about most kinds of foreign entanglements, as uh, Washington famously called them, uh, and so on, that it's, become, that, that it's become something of an incredible occasion when we say that we are going to send eight bombers to take part in a campaign which is already going on, which we're already part of on the other side of a non-existent border, and yet look at what we had to do even to get the decision. Look at the degree of prestige that had to be expended by the Prime Minister. Look at how the debate actually had to be conducted. Look at the way in which you're supposed to have one of these great parliamentary moments. Can you imagine what the House of Commons in its current mood and what the country in its current mood would have done with Czech 
Czechoslovakia in 1938. Mm-hmm. I don't want to kind of invoke Godwin's law here, but just to kind of just give you some kind of idea of the, of the scale of this and so on. Um, and it wasn't just that you had a majority of Labour MPs who wouldn't even do this wouldn't even do this. That's a majority of Labour MPs. But you even had a significant minority of Tory MPs who are essentially now pacifists. You know, people like John Barron. I was on a TV programme with with John Barron, whose solution, uh, sotto voce in the end, was let's help President Assad retake Raqqa. Yeah, really great politics, etc. And that is a senior member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee there uh, and a Conservative uh, who, because he was once a captain in Northern Ireland, apparently, has an expertise ranging over the Middle East and all matters military, <laughs> which allows him to, 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 to discuss in this way. And we are all supposed to congratulate them for their incredible uh, brilliance in consulting their conscience. You consult your conscience, your incredible conscience, your well-finely tuned conscience about whether you do the absolute minimum you could conceivably do under these circumstances and say, oh, it was a very hard thing for me, it was so difficult, I consulted all my constituents, etc. and I came up with the idea, I, in the end I just couldn't do it. You couldn't do it, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, Phil, is it, I mean, is this just going back to Iraq that they've all become so nervous, or, or can we go back to Suez, or can we go back even even further than that? I, th- I think it is Iraq. I think it's Iraq in two ways. One, in the in the formal procedural way, in that Blair went to the House of Commons for um, consent, which he got. You have mm. to remember um, from the House with for the Tory the vote, of course. Yes, yeah. for, for the conflict, and and since then it's become a bit of a precedent. Though there's no reason why it should be, because precedents can in the British Constitution can simply be ignored and and set a new one by doing something else but formally every Prime Minister since has thought they've got to come to the House of Commons to to have a vote on even as David says what is in fact a fairly small Mm. endeavour to simply transfer an an existing operation across a border which is not recognised by the the enemy Uh, and and which will take place anyway because all the other coalition partners are going to do it so it's not exactly uh, 1940 and the Battle of Britain so there's that sense in which Iraq hangs over it but also over the decision about whether to engage Britain's military in any adventure at all, Iraq hangs very heavy over that. Um, Usually wrongly, obviously, because the parallels between Iraq 2003 and Syria right now, well, ISIS in Syria right now, are almost zero. But um, it's very easy to to invoke and it's very easy to stand on your conscience and think, as David says, oh, it's so terribly, terribly difficult. Mm. The Prime Minister, I think, made that easier in a way because there were quite significant holes in his case. He rested a lot <coughs> on a number, 70,000 uh, troops, which he probably w- was unwise to do that. He could, have, he could have made the case without needing that part of it because that allowed people, like Liam Byrne, for example, made a speech which was, well, I would do it if it was enormous, but as it's only small, I'm not going to do it. So if I can't mm. have everything, I'm going <laughs> to have nothing. And, yeah. he, and that was permitted. It sounded reasonable, that position. When you press it, it's not reasonable at all, but it sounded reasonable because the Prime Minister made such a lot of a number, which is probably nonsense. Yeah, Lucy? Uh, I, I have to say, Phil, I disagree. I, I think the Liam Byrne position is is, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it is a reasonable one because uh, you know many people uh, who voted against the airstrikes said that they were amenable, in theory, to military action in Syria, uh, and I believe that. And, and, and if I were in their shoes, um, I, I can see that real dilemma 
getting involved in airstrikes isn't enough. Yes, it will degrade ISIS, but it's not going to wipe them out. There is, at some stage, going to have to be troops on the ground. And why don't we have that sensible grown-up conversation now? As it is, there's absolutely no comprehensive strategy for what we do when we've bombed them. You know, who's going to come in? These 70,000 moderate fighters who are the bogus battalion. Uh, I, I think... I would feel more comfortable about Britain going in if we said, right, yes, there's going to be a NATO or coalition forces. We're going to do this properly. Um, but would he have got that through the House? I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? Not necessarily, but it, it takes more time. I think last week it felt so rushed to me. You know, what, why couldn't there have been a two-day debate? Why did it all have to kind of happen so quickly? To my mind, there was really a feeling that um, David Cameron was in the pocket of Obama. You know, he he was sort of afraid of, you know, upsetting or losing face in front of the international allies. Everyone else is already at it. We're late to the party. Uh, and I think there are big questions around the principle of collective security and if you undermine that by refusing to, to partake in airstrikes. But it just had a nasty feeling of, of being rushed and shoved through for the wrong reasons to me. David, there's, there's nothing uh, that actually still requires a Prime Minister to have a vote. I mean, I mean, in times uh, pa- And in times past, he would have done it. There quite possibly would have been a statement to the House. I mean, thinking back to, f- for example, uh, Britain's involvement with the United States in 1998 over Iraq mm. and the enforcing of no-fly zones and so on, which was a very, very much bigger operation uh, for us than this was, I don't believe that there was either a major debate yeah. in the House of Commons or a demand for a debate in the House of Commons. So that gives you some idea of how how, of, of how things have changed. Uh, but I just want to go back to Lucy's point about the kind of everything or nothing. It is, I mean, speaking of somebody who has in their own kind of way suggested that we should have enforced no fly zones in 2011 to be told no, that was going too far, who said that we should have taken out Assad's air force in 2013 before ISIS became absolutely huge in order to try and par- partly to enforce a, a solution, but certainly to stop that kind of incredible bombing of the Syrian population, which has been such a factor in the Syrian refugees uh, since then. No, people couldn't do that either. It is slightly galling, really, when a final a government says, yeah, well, we're going to do this tiny little thing. They have people turn around and say, no, because it's no good because you're not doing the really big thing that, I, incidentally, I never suggested before that you do. I mean, it's just kind of, OK, uh, because this is an international business and because, in the end, if you want Western troops on the ground, and actually I would completely support that, in fact, along with part of a coalition, but if we don't get that, then in that case I'm not going for anything. Well, in that case, that's a, that's a vote for nothing. And it's always a vote for nothing. And, you, or, and it's always a vote for keeping your conscience clean because the big thing that could have been done wasn't the thing that was done, been done, so you don't have to do the I, small thing. I, I, I don't think that's, that's right, David. And, and, and for me, it's not about you know all or nothing or big operational small. It's about what works. We don't have, to my mind, a comprehensive strategy. What happens when ISIS goes? There will be a vacuum. So I think a lot Good. of people are just working back from, from, from the you know the the end point you know yes in theory I, I would support airstrikes but where does that get us what happens after this and that is a hangover from Iraq where the invasion happened very quickly and successfully but there was no planning for the aftermath nation rebuilding security you know that that's so, the Lucy, gl- how many of those MPs who let's say we we provided a comprehensive plan right now for the aftermath how many of those MPs who used that argument you think would have said okay then that's fine I think not very many of them Actually, I think Liam Byrne, who we mentioned, might have, might well be one who would. So I, I would exempt him from that accusation. But there were plenty of MPs, surely, who were making a seemingly grand argument in order to for to justify fairly narrow politics, wasn't weren't there? I think that 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 probably 
is fair to say and I think there is people wanting to keep their conscience clean and that's what you know stop the war we're advocating you know vote no you know keep your hands off you know keep keep people did seem to be looking for excuses for example when um, Cameron came out with that terrorist sympathizers line that gave a few more uh, MPs the yes. chance to pull back, didn't it? Well, perhaps, and that, that that was sort of an irrelevance to my mind and incredibly self-important for all the MPs to sort of try and derail the debate from the substantial issue to, to talking about, oh, I've been insulted by being lumped in with this um, insult by the Prime Minister at a private meeting last night. Um, aside from, from, from the politiquing of MPs, I, I just think, you know, we do live in a post era where people want, you know, better answers to questions, m- more comprehensive uh you know, in, information. Uh, we still haven't had Chilcot. We still haven't really had acknowledgements and apologies. Um, and, and the public at large fit, had lost trust in government. Government used to kind of, you know, give information or tell them, right, this is what we're going to do because it's the right thing to do. Government used to give far less information out than it does now. We inquire into everything. We assist on absolutely clear answers to everything. You couldn't conceivably have entered into any military action in the last 200 years on the basis that you'd absolutely be guaranteed what the... Uh, one of the worst things, that the sets of two phrases that I can think of, are exit strategies and mission creep. Missions always creep, including this one that we're sitting mm-hmm. in at the moment. Uh, uh, and there's never ever an exit strategy or if there is your exit strategy never bears any relationship by the time you get to the exit as it did when you went through the entrance uh, and so on these are just ways of saying i want a certainty you can't actually have right well phil let's move seamlessly into our second item you ain't no muslim bruv that's become the most quoted uh, sentence over the last couple of days on just about every bulletin uh, but you're saying here of course it's not quite Right. It's not true enough, unfortunately. I mean, the Prime Minister quoted it with a horrible mock uh, East London accent as well, which was one of the worst political moments of recent times. But I can absolutely see, obviously, what the sentiment is. It is to say that the idiot who slashed out at passengers on the tube station is not a proper Muslim, and that, by implication billions of Muslims throughout history and right now are quite capable of living their ordinary lives, professing their faith and not killing people on tube trains. Mm-hmm. So to that extent, it, obviously, it, it's, a, it's a sentiment that I, I would endorse. It is also worth saying, too, that in these instances, the motivation of people who do these things is very complicated. You can't draw a straight line from anybody's religion to what they do. Lots of the people you discover are mentally unstable in some Mm. way. They have some sort of condition. Some of them are fired up by politics rather than by religion or by nationhood or by some weird cocktail. Sometimes personal recriminations enter into it. So when you look back at all the instances and you look at the particular individuals involved, it's always complicated. So to draw a line to say Islamic radical, therefore murder, is always a very poor piece of analysis. However, it is equally poor to make the opposite error, which people do all the time, which is to say that the religion and the, the form of religious faith is irrelevant to what is happening in, in these instances because it mm. simply cannot be. It is, there are very few creeds, very few systems of thought, and by here I mean religious thought rather than Islam, which are capable in the wrong hands of being an alibi for murder. You can't do that with the work of John Stuart Mill, for example, because you part company with John Stuart Mill the minute you start slashing people on tube stations. Now, you don't part company with a creed which promises you eternal joy in some sort of celestial afterlife if you're doing that. A particular interpretation of that creed permits you that sort of alibi. So it is part of a religious 
organisation, an institution, that it has to husband its resources. It has to keep people away from a mm. nasty, vicious interpretation of creeds, which can be really dangerous in the wrong hands. David, do you do you sort of think that the, the creed offers that justification? Well, it feels right in that most creeds, most, uh, most creeds can. You know, I look back at. We all know that those of us who were brought up—I wasn't, you know—I wasn't brought up religious at all. But those of us who were brought up uh, under the distinction between the Old and the New Testaments broadly were told that the Old Testament—this is if you weren't brought up a a professing uh, Jew—was. established, you know, things about God, etc. It was essentially bloodthirsty and horrible, etc. And we had to kind of get over it. It just told you how the world began, etc., which was quite useful, etc. But it all kind of led up to the test to the New Testament. And the New Testament, we were told, is about peace, love, you know, etc., uh, turning the other cheek, etc., uh, not turning the other knife. And, and so you can see you can see how almost all uh, how quite a few beliefs and few religions can can more easily under certain circumstances lend themselves to ideas of vengeance etc the the problems we've often talked about is the life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today question of whether or not there is a capacity for a significant reformation within within Islam or not, it's not reformation or maybe a significant discussion in a, an, a religion that doesn't actually have authority like exists in the Christian church there's no mm. there's no pope there's no uh, archbishop of canterbury um, people are taken in a sense teachers teachers and leaders at their own recognizance if you can amass a certain number of followers then you are uh, a, a significant figure so it's actually very disparate so when this guy says in late and tube session you ain't no muslim bruv one of the reasons why we, we we leap upon it is because we very very much want it to be true mm-hmm. and we very very much want both muslims to believe it and non-muslims to believe it you know looking at what's happened over donald Trump in the States uh, and his statement about Muslims, you know, whereby somebody who is supposedly polling at 25% for one of the great parties of America gives a proposition with regard to Muslims, which is so 
utterly at odds with everything that that nation stands for and uh, and so on and gets applauded by by a large by a large audience you think to yourself i am i prefer you ain't no muslim bruv and the ramifications of that even if it requires me to be slightly naive about what conceivably aspects of the religion could at the most extreme version lead to yeah lucy do, i mean do you, you'd think that this would be used in <clears throat> some way or, or other by theresa may in her anti-radicalization strategy if it the the idea of getting the majority muslim population on side this kind of thing yeah. presumably it, she, well, she would pick the, pick this up well certainly and and um i think that's a sort of an ongoing call for you know senior imams in, in the muslim community to stand up and say not in our name which, which does happen quite widely but i i, I just kind of want to, want to roll back a bit and just sort of say you know this this man in in, in the tube if we'd heard about him if we not heard that, that this is for Syria we just say he's a sort of fruitcake or common or garden criminal it's it's very difficult to to sort of to work out how much religion does really play a part you know the Paris attackers many of them were sort of had sort of drink drug problems they weren't mm. devout Muslims sort of you know praying five times a day um, and also we see sort of people inspired by Christianity to do terrible things in the last 10 days we've had this Robert Deere chap go into an abortion clinic in Colorado and shoot three people including a policeman dead so I think it, it is a it is a problem that all faiths can inspire sort of zealot zealots who, mm. who kind of go out well, and do I, things I, in their names I yeah. totally but, agree with but, that. Yeah. But, but why the is... Christians are in the dock as well. Well, so, well certainly, but and why... historically, they, they, if we yeah. do a league table historically, yes. they're still, they're <laughs> still winning. <laughs> but, I, but I think it's worth looking at why Islam and, and jihadism in particular is so successful. And I think part of it is to do with the marketing. When you watch their fantastic, sort of fantastically produced um, videos they put out on social media, the icons they use, the stallions, the horses, the moons, the knives, it's all very sort of masculine and, and glamorous. And I think... I think there's much more t- on the sort of secular side of Islam mm. and how it markets itself in, in the sorry I- Islamism and the most extreme elements um, of the religion that are, that are worth delving into deeper rather than looking around the fringes of the creeds, this verse or that verse that may say something peaceful or, or violent. Mm. Phil and and Trump, I mean, uh, the, the sad thing is that, <laughs> as David says, quite a lot of Americans will agree with him. It, it's really sad, and uh, as David says, it's absolutely contrary to the whole idea of America. Mm. Um, it's um, it's desperate that a party like the Republican Party, which is not one I've ever supported, but nevertheless generally has been a party of some great people, is fielding such a moral cretin as Donald Trump as a potential presidential candidate. He's still in the lead at a relatively late stage in the proceedings. It is quite stunningly extraordinary and very worrying. And that party needs to get a grip on it. So. Interesting to see what the polls do after. Well, there after was already this. there's already been some recent suggestion that when it actually comes to it, when they actually go into their caucuses in Iowa or they go to the ballot boxes in New Hampshire, um, they'll say, well, that was... That, you know, we got that off our chests, etc. <laughs> so now we're going to have... I mean, I have to say, however, it's only a minor step. No, actually, now Trump's made it a major step. So I was going to say it's a minor step from Trump to Cruz, but actually Trump has ensured that that's actually a major step. Yes. Uh, I dislike Cruz enormously, uh, and he has many of the same co- uh, attributes, but Trump has made sure that I enormously prefer Cruz to Trump. You find yourself rooting for Marco Rubio, <laughs> yeah. which for me is like thinking Jeremy Corbyn's any good. But I, me- I was over in the States during the TV debates last time round, and I remember 
running into a lot of Republicans who thought that Romney was a total wimp. You know, it, there, are, it's a, there are very right-wing members of that. It's the classic political predicament, which we're going to come on to in, in Britain in a minute, which is that a party has a base and has a view of the world which is not shared by the wider electorate. And parties always confront this problem. Do they please themselves mm. or do they, mm. they not please themselves? When I, when I started in journalism, working for a programme called Weekend World, um, which is a kind of high-end current affairs programme, we renamed ourselves Game for a Dilemma because what we used to try and do was find the central dilemma that anybody had in a particular situation. And the central dilemma in the Labour Party at that time was always this. How do you try and bring together what the members think with what the electorate wants? And it was always the dilemma. It was the dilemma mm. foot, it was the dilemma for Kinnock. Uh, Blair, etc., solved that dilemma uh, and created a new dilemma, and we've just gone straight back. Anyway, uh, sorry, I'm preempting you, Lucy. All right, well, that's a good entree to um, Lucy's uh, subject for the day. Prime Minister Corbyn, eh? Well, I'm not saying it's um, the most likely proposition, but what I really want to do is just get us talking about the fact that on the ground, Labour does seem more popular uh, than people in SW1 and in national newspapers are giving the party credit for. Um, and I just kind of worry we're, we're reading it all wrong again. I think there are... Um, well, firstly, my... Uh, prediction would be that Jeremy Corbyn um, isn't going anywhere. He isn't going to be deposed. Um, there's, there's just no way that can happen. 60, almost 60% of the party across all the categories voted for him. We've run a poll in recent weeks showing that support for him within the party has gone up to 66%. So he's not going anywhere. And I just think that the situation um, in the country, both public opinion uh, and politics, is much more fluid me, than we suppose at the moment. You know, the Tories are about to descend into infighting on Europe. I think there's a lot of um, pain to come in the country from welfare. Um, I think we could be in a situation in four, four years' time where actually pu public opinion has, has swung the other way and, and a more left-leaning government looks popular. You know, if particularly, I think, if in fact, I've written here, if the, um, if the economy falters again, you know, people might say, well, austerity hasn't worked. Even more so, if the economy um, is on the up, there continues to be um, progress, but none of it trickles down. You know, that's a classic mm -hmm. um, time when you see um, Labour come in, when there's more money to be spent. We've got two coiled springs here yes. waiting to, um, waiting <laughs> to go into action. I'm a very relaxed spring. <laughs> go on then, Phil. Well, I mean, firstly, I didn't have such a bad year, actually, because I was one of the few people who was absolutely resolute throughout that Ed Miliband could never be Prime Minister, and that turned yep. out to be right. And two things matter. The reason I think that I looked through the polls and, and stuck with that instinct was that I think only two things matter. One is the leader, and the other is your reputation on the economy. Labour is currently trailing the Tories by 20-odd points on the economy. Jeremy Corbyn has a rating of minus 41, which is unprecedentedly bad for somebody at this stage of his leadership. Nobody ever comes back from those numbers, and he won't either. Labour Party is on 29%, 11 points behind the Tories. It's absolutely inconceivable that anybody can come back from those numbers. To do so would require political genius, and it is a bizarre idea that for 30 years, languishing on the backbenches, we've had this hidden political genius who's now transformed himself <laughs> into this man who can upset all the political history. Things are a little bit more fluid than they were, but only a little bit, because things change slowly in politics, not quickly. And the tyranny of news is that things have to change quickly, but truthfully, they don't. So Corbyn will be constantly interesting to news and thoroughly uninteresting analytically. He's going nowhere in the sense that if he stays in place, Labour will poll not much more than 20% of the next election.
Yeah, he the threatens the death of the Labour Party, not its regeneration. The, the question is, uh, as Lucy points out, David, how, how he goes. I mean, um, we may take that view, but the, the membership uh, takes a different view, certainly at the moment. Well, the problem he needs is, time to fail, The problem is that they voted for him without an exit strategy, uh, Lucy. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is no exit strategy because <laughs> the entrance wasn't predicted partially. If we were just on the narrow point of uh, how you would get rid of him, but I think, uh, you know, Lucy's argument deserves also a response just on the... I mean, uh, Phil has laid out the broad historical grounds to which you would have to say, your, your argument would have to be, yes, but so many things are so different from the way in which they were before. The orthodoxies that proved r- true right the way up until the last election are suddenly going to be overturned. Because one of the things that you notice is that when the economy is difficult, you don't necessarily say to yourself, well, in that case, what you want is uh, somebody who says, essentially, I'm just going to spend loads more money on it. It's, uh, I, it's not, I mean, I just, I just, it, it is difficult to imagine that people would alter their pattern of looking at the way in which the economy is running in order to do that. And the other thing is that Jeremy Corbyn was a boring old fart when he was 40. Can you imagine what he's going to be like by the time he's 71, which is at the time of the next election? Uh, the man has never run anything, and it shows in absolutely everything. So even if, let's say, his politics were as popular as you think they are, and I don't think they are, uh, he himself would be the most inadequate conceivable vehicle for those for those politics. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't actually disagree with that as it happens, but what I, what I think is, is the infighting, um, as we've seen in recent weeks, none of that cuts through to the public, you know, and, and, you know, Oldham, I think, you know, said it's a key test for him. He's, you know, Labour going to completely tank. In fact, it was exactly as, you know, John Curtis, the foremost pollster of politics in the land, sort of said, you know, after um, election defeat like Labour had, election, you're usually going to see a new leader have a sort of 7% bounce. That's exactly a um, percentage point bounce. That's exactly what we saw in Oldham. The vote went from 55% to 62% for Labour. So he's performing. Was that, for, was that for Corbyn or was that for McMahon? I think, you know, there's probably a bit of um, McMahon being a local candidate who's done a lot for Oldham, fine. But if Jeremy Corbyn is as awful as everyone says, if everyone cares so much that he won't sing the national anthem... that Labour hung on to. And and the Corbyn people are resting an extraordinary amount on a seat which Labour would expect to hold. And so where are Labour's extra seats going to come from? Because... I can't see that they're going to come in Scotland, where I'd expect Labour to come behind the Tories next May. They're surely not going to come in the south of England, where Labour has got nothing to say to people of a slightly uh, wealthier. So where are all these new seats going to come from? It's a good question. I don't, don't have the answers to that. You know, Scotland could be fluid. I think there's a lot of problems in Scotland, not least with healthcare and education. And when the lustre of the dream of independence starts to fade and people take closer notice of some of the domestic problems um, the country has um, under the SNP, I think there could be uh, a case for Labour to rebuild in the long run. I don't think that's going to happen in, in five years' time. I wrote a provocative pitch here just to... to, you to did. Uh, I did. Um, <laughs> you did. But, but do you, do you, think, think, do you actually think he'll fight the next election? I think, Labour, I think Jeremy leader. Corbyn or someone on the left, if he, for whatever reasons, you know, health reasons, unexpected reasons, were to step down, um, I think we see another, you know, far left candidate fighting the 2020 election. And all I'm saying is I don't think we're going to see um, a Labour victory. I just don't necessarily think we're going to see a Labour bloodbath. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I think you're wrong, Lucy. I think we will. Um, again, this is kind of you know uh, ancient precedent. Phil will remember. This is uh, Phil Webster will remember in 1990 in the in the council elections of May 1990 when Thatcher's bacon was saved by good results in Westminster and Wandsworth, despite the Absolutely. fact that actually, yeah. despite the fact that Kenneth actually, if you looked at the results overall, they were dreadful. But they said no, she's pulled out, she's pulled through, and so on. And it was a kind of little dawn that took her through. The the next summer and so on and became quite famous in its way. Oldham is one of those. Oldham is a seat that was very, very good for Labour with a very, very good Labour candidate, which they hung on to. But if you look and it's you know uh, uh, if you look at the general run of polling, all polls almost uh, measuring almost all the d- different things, and if you or even just listen to the way in which people talk about Corbyn, classically on the doorsteps, etc., it is. A catastrophe. It's not just kind of. It's not. It's not slightly bad or not very good. It's catastrophic. And if you talk to people within the Labour Party, good, staunch Labour Party activists for the last 20, 30, 40 years about it, what they've got is a catastrophe. And you know what? All these new members flooding into the into the constituents. That's a catastrophe too, because these are people who are emboldened to think by their very numbers that they actually speak for an electorate with whom they have practically no contact. Mm. It's a kind of perfect storm. It's mm. actually a perfect storm. Um, and it's possible in a perfect storm to say, oh, there's so much fabulous lightning and thunder, maybe actually the world is a beautiful place. No, you're going to get drowned. <laughs> I think one thing on which you might well be right, Lucy, is that he might well fight in the next election. I mean, getting rid of mm. Corbyn is by no means easy for all the reasons you set out. And the, no conversation with the Labour MP doesn't now start with the question, well, what are we going to do? Um, <laughs> it is the only question. So... In those circumstances, you think that ordinarily something would happen, but the membership is a serious barrier against getting rid of him. So it, he has a mandate, there's no question about it. So getting rid of Corbyn before the next election, even if that seems obviously the right thing to do, may be very, very difficult. My view is, if I can have my view, is that he yeah. will be gone quite quickly, but we'll see. Who knows? Who knows? It's, uh, it's going to keep us busy, isn't it? But full marks for, for raising it. Yeah, it's a great, great question. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Thank you very much to David Aronovich, Lucy Fisher and Phil Collins. Uh, Head to thetimes.co.uk and subscribe to this via iTunes. And don't forget to sign up to Redbox if you haven't already done so. thetimes.co.uk forward slash Redbox forward slash sign up forward slash. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.